In this episode, I'm joined by Anna Lutkaitis, author of Dark Side of the Dharma, Meditation, Madness, and Other Maladies on the Contemplative Path. Anna is a postgraduate researcher at the University of Sydney, and her research focuses on mysticism, the dark night of the soul, and the healing potential of altered states of consciousness. We learn how Anna's own existential crisis saw her embark on a spiritual quest, including deep exploration of meditation and yoga, and close contact with pragmatic Dharma teachers Daniel Ingram and Kenneth Folk. Anna reveals where she was placed on the four-path model of enlightenment, and why that framework is no longer the focus of her personal practice. We also discuss Anna's research into adverse meditation effects, explore three different theories of the dark night of the soul, and consider the friction points between enlightenment and psychological health. Anna then asks me about my experience sharing meditation with others, and we discuss my interests in the parallels between mindfulness and mainstream Christianity, the mechanisms of religious conversion, and the pros and cons of intensive retreat. So without further ado, Anna Lutkaitis. Anna Lutkaitis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. So the dark side of the Dharma, which I have here, uh, Meditation, Madness and Other Maladies on the Contemplative Path, published by Aeon Books, is based on your master's thesis, The Dark Side of Dharma, Why Have Adverse Effects of Meditation Been Ignored in Contemporary Western Secular Contexts? And in the introduction of your book, you discuss the uh, deeply personal reasons that initiated your interest in this topic. And I'm curious, can you talk about how you became interested in this subject and the circumstances that led to your writing this thesis? Yes, I can. Um, I'll try not to make it too meandering and, and rambling, but um, I guess you could say I've always been a lifelong seeker. So always had an interest in spirituality, um, as a, I was the child who was kind of laying down on the grass, looking up at the sky and wondering why something exists rather than nothing. Um, and probably about 10 years ago, I learned to meditate. Um, so even though as a secret kind of, I, I was never um, in any particular spiritual tradition. Um, and when I went to learn to meditate, it was really just because it was kind of the thing that a lot of people were doing at the time. So it was, I guess, on the cusp of this big wellness movement um, and people were talking about all the, the benefits, um, personal benefits of meditation. So I went into the practice really thinking of it as, um, you know, a, a self-care or performance enhancement practice. Um, and... When I started meditating, um, I started having some really unusual effects. So the first thing that happened were headaches. Every time I sat down to practice, I'd have these awful headaches. Um, and I asked the teacher what they were. And he said, oh, look, it can just happen sometimes. Um, you know, keep going and they should go away. And they did. Um, and then I just noticed that I would get strange things happening during the session so sometimes I would have random memories come up from my childhood and you know nothing traumatic but just really odd things that I had completely forgotten um, and I'd also sometimes see words appear as if written on a screen in front of me um, but probably the most interesting thing was that um, I would often get into a really deep state of concentration and see this purple light that would appear in the middle of my visual field. And when I would see it, it was like I would drop into this really deep trance state. 
And um, I asked my teacher about it and he just said to me, look, you know, sometimes people see lights, sometimes people hear sounds, um, don't worry about it, just keep going. And I, <laughs> there was something about that response that was just so um, unsatisfactory for me. So I should say this was a secular meditation teacher. And I think I say in the book, I just thought, Either this guy doesn't know what this light is or he's keeping it from me, but I have to find out what it is. Um, and I ended up Googling, like, you know, first thing you do, Google, I'm seeing a purple light when meditating and um, <laughs> came across the work of Daniel Ingram and Kenneth Folk. And um, it kind of, whatever, the search just went straight to their pages. Um, and so I started to read through their material and was just amazed. It was this whole other world of meditation that was so far removed from, you know, the, the secular practice that I was being taught. Um, and so I actually booked in and had some one-on-one -on -one calls with Kenneth. Um, and when I told him about the light, the first thing he said was, oh, that's a nimitta. Um, like, yeah, duh. <laughs> it's, it's easy to explain. Um, and so it kind of um, opened up this whole world to me that there were meditation teachers who knew about these things, um, you know, knew about these techniques in a, a greater level of detail and knew about their history and the traditions that they came from and what they were designed to do. Um, so that kind of started, I guess, a whole new stage of, of seeking at that point and trying to figure out um, how this all fit together. And then around about, um, so what, where are we now? So around 2017, um, I called the University of Sydney and decided that I, I wanted to do like a continuing education course in Buddhism because I thought, you know, all of my internet searches and reading various books is not really, I'm still not piecing it all together. Um, and I had a phone call with Carol Cusack, who ended up becoming my supervisor. And we just had this phone call that went on for about an hour and she said look I think you should come and do a PhD with me um, and at the time I, I couldn't because I my undergraduate degree is actually in psychology so um, I knew nothing about the study of religion but I did a master's as a, a bridging course and that is I what I ended up writing that's where the dark side of Dharma came from so it was that master's it was a master's by research um, and I yeah, so I should say when I was doing my research into my internet research into meditation, um, I was coming across obviously a lot of um, stuff on Daniel's site in particular about the dark side of meditation and meditation adverse effects. And it was, you know, something that just intrigued me and that I couldn't let go of, um, particularly because in my own life, I'd always struggled with depression since I was an early adult. And I started to, you know, get really fascinated by this idea of could, you know, could depression ha have a spiritual component? You know, could it be a spiritual crisis? Is it something I could meditate my way out of? Um, and, yeah, I just became intrigued by this idea that meditation could have a dark side, that, um, you know, that mental illness could be spiritual crisis. And I was just really um, kind of, I wondered why there were only a handful of people who were talking about these things. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how the book manifested.
Yeah, well, that's fascinating. And that's the key question that you address in your thesis and in this book, which is why are mm. uh, these adverse effects often ignored in contexts like your secular uh, meditation teacher and in some religious contexts, I think, but specifically why in the secular and, and how is it that that comes about? Uh, but I'm curious before we talk about that, what did you find to be the key differences between the secular meditation teacher? I'm curious what traditions he was informed by, uh, knowingly or unknowingly. And I'm curious mm. also, what was the key difference between somebody like him and the, the, the ways of working you found with Daniel Ingram and Kenneth Folk? Yeah, so I think the the difference was that um, there was just so much transparency when it came to Daniel and Kenneth. So you could ask them a question and they would happily answer it. Whereas I felt like there was this veil of, um, I don't know if it was secrecy, but just um, this kind of opaqueness and murkiness around the history of these traditions. And so for me, I think I really, I wanted to know what is meditation? I mean, it's such a a big word um can someone just give me a specific definition and of course going into my research i quickly realized that you know it, it's almost a meaningless term because it's an umbrella term that encompasses thousands of different practices that you know can be quite context specific um so probably um yeah i would say the transparency that these teachers had and also just their rich knowledge of a tradition and and where the techniques were coming from and then they could kind of troubleshoot your practice because if something happened they you know had a context in which to understand it and for yourself as a practitioner what was the outcome of associating with Kenneth Folk the private sessions with him um, mm. in, in terms of your own practice I'm curious what techniques you were doing what changes you made and what effects that that had yeah, so I was doing a noting practice um, and I think that um, it was very helpful for a while, but I noticed that um, I started to feel a bit dissociated after a while, started to feel a bit detached from everything, feeling like I was stuck in this observing, witnessing state where it was not necessarily a pleasant place to be because things felt a bit unreal. Um, so I actually found that I think that that technique was really useful and it's sort of something that I now would dip into as needed. So if you're, you know, if I was in a situation where I was thinking, am I kind of being consumed by this thought, then it's really useful to, you know, to do a mindfulness practice and, and get back to observing rather than being absorbed by. Um, but in terms of my own personal practice, I ended up moving more into an embodied practice of yoga asana um, and then I also got really interested in fire casino um, and yeah so candle gazing concentration practices and I just found that those were the practices that um, really I don't know I, I just found them to be more grounding which I know can be funny because some people say they're scared of doing fire casino um, that something <laughs> that it might send them um a bit loopy, but I've always found it to be a really calming, grounding practice. Well, that's very interesting. Fire Casino, I expect most listeners will be aware, is a practice of gazing at a candle and then working with the afterimage uh, behind mm. the closed eyes. And it's said to be particularly good for bringing on high states of concentration. 
uh, but also has been said by Daniel Ingram in particular, who's a champion of that technique and perhaps even something of a reviver of it. Uh, it's a traditional technique, but uh, to bring on all sorts of strange psychological, indeed psychic experiences, seeing entities, tracing magical symbols in the air that other people can see and so on. These are claims that Daniel has made about his own experiences with the, with the fire casino. So there's a bit of a mystique about that technique, I think. Did you ever uh, go on uh, fire casino retreats, uh, do any lengthy retreats of the fire casino? It's said to be good to do that in a retreat context so that concentration momentum can build up. And did you have any weird and wonderful experiences the like of which Daniel discusses in his work on the subject? Um, my fire casino story is really interesting because it wasn't actually Daniel who introduced me to fire casino. So... Um, it was a teacher who called, um, oh, I, I think his name was Bava Ram, and he was a journalist called Brad Willis, who then became a yoga teacher, and now he's disappeared again. And this is the strangest story. So he, <laughs> I had this is in my you know relentless seeking phase. I had um, some Skype meetings with him, and he said, "I'm going to give you this technique, and I just want you to look at it." the candle flame and stare at it and then look at the after image and write down what you see and then I want you to do it again and just keep doing it you know a few times every evening and um so I, so I did and it took probably you know half a dozen times or a few days and I, all of a sudden I realized hang on I'm so like I'm seeing this light show happen but it's the exact same sequence every time. I'm going once again. Oh my God, what's this about? So I mess. I sent him an email, and he's. Uh, I got back a like an out of office saying that he'd gone on indefinite retreat and wasn't returning, and um, I, I've never ever heard from him ever again. So. I, periodically over the years I would kind of try and get in touch with him or I've contacted his wife a couple of times and she just said look he's not teaching anymore um but again Daniel kind of came to the rescue with his um informative web page about fire casino and um I sent him an email saying oh my gosh you won't believe it I've been doing this practice and like yeah I've been having these really interesting effects and he's like yeah it happens to everyone and they all see the same thing and um so that got me hooked um and I was only practicing probably for 20 minutes and sporadically and um I, I was invited to a retreat and wasn't able to make it um so I never got to the stage where you know I was drawing in the air um or anything like that but there is definitely a part of me that would love to get more heavily into that practice and and see where it could take me. Um, I never got any really weird psychological effects, but I did go through a period where um, I was having a lot of, uh, I wouldn't call them night terrors, but parasomnias. And I was having hypnagogic hallucinations as I was drifting off to sleep. And um, particularly sometimes I would feel that I was being sucked into like a, a vortex or a tunnel and um and it wasn't um it wasn't terrifying but it definitely wasn't pleasant and it would shock me and I, I do wonder if it was related to that practice and at the time I was doing a really intense um yoga asana practice as well with a lot of backward bends which is very stimulating for the nervous system so um perhaps it was that perhaps it was something else but um I no longer experience those effects which is good. 
Hmm. I'm curious who and what methods you consulted during your relentless seeking phase. Oh my gosh. It'd be a, a phone book of people. Um, <laughs> but no one who, um, no one else who really stands out. I mean, I think I, w I was listening to a lot of Buddha at the gas pump and, you know, just listening to podcasts and reading voraciously and just kind of doing the whole spiritual smorgasbord, you know, um, and trying to understand what was there a common core here? Was there something that linked all of these traditions together? Um, or were these people all talking about entirely different things? And it wasn't actually until I went on to do my academic study that, you know, I just realized how big this area is how diverse these traditions are and how many different techniques there are and you could kind of spend a lifetime trying to understand them all and you know never quite get to the bottom of it i've got a couple other questions on this that just come to mind as i'm sure you're aware people who get in contact with the work of daniel ingram and kenneth folk and people in that what they sometimes call the pragmatic dharma movement one mm. of the one of the uh ideas that people become uh, often, I think, enamored by is the idea of the four path model. Mm -hmm. And they're somewhat more accessible reinterpretation of that traditional Theravadan four stage model, that traditional Buddhist model, beginning with the, what they call stream entry and then eventually becoming an arhat, a fully enlightened uh, person. And in fact, Daniel has controversially claimed to be uh, an arhat, which breaks the taboo of talking about such things that have previously been extant. So I'm curious if you followed that model or follow that model, if you made attempts when working with Kenneth, for example, to achieve stream entry, or perhaps you were diagnosed with a path already. Um, what's your take on that as a practitioner? Um, well, at the time I had been diagnosed as being in the middle paths. Um, and I certainly thought they were very interesting models. And I spent time back then thinking about it. Um, but now I think my perspective has changed in that, um, I guess I've become, you know, to use the word pragmatic again, um, much more focused on how practices affect my daily life. So there was probably a time where, um, you know, I, I, I would have thought about becoming an ascetic or a monk and, you know, I was, I was really into practice and I thought I can imagine going down that path. Um, and th then I think I, I made a you know, a, a, a clear decision to go, no, I, I, I want to be in this kind of worldly sphere. And then I went into academia, which is kind of even, um, even more far removed in, in some ways. But um, yeah, I no longer really, I mean, I think they're ama amazing models and I think that they're useful, but personally, um, I, yeah, don't refer to them or anything. And I guess in terms of my own practice, the things that I consider are, is this practice, you know, making me happier? Am I suffering less? And are my relationships better? Okay, now now I've got more questions. So <laughs> okay. you were diagnosed, presumably by Kenneth, also by Daniel, as being in the middle paths. What was the basis of that diagnosis? Was it meditation experiences that you'd had or was it off the cushion experiences that you'd had that were correlated to those path attainments? Um, well, I would have had conversations with both of them where, you know, it, it was discussed and I think it was more around insights that I was having off the cushion. 
but again this is going back you know eight years now and you know, I can't remember in in great detail and it's not something that um I guess now it's not something that's so meaningful to me that I you know I want to hang my hat on it and go oh yes I was diagnosed on this to me that's like that's one model that's a really interesting model um but there are so many other models as well especially now coming at it from a you know from an academic perspective where I feel like I've I have stepped back and taken a broader view of of all of these different traditions yeah and I think you've made that clear that your practice has broadened considerably since those days and in fact in in your book in chapter one a brief history of meditation east and west you do give a very interesting overview of the different approaches to meditation and their migration from hindu predominantly hindu and buddhist contexts although you do write about some other ones as well into western culture okay in that case the last question then we'll move on to your book in your dedication you write about daniel ingram who has been a guest on the podcast some number of times Many thanks are owed to Daniel M. Ingram for being relentlessly transparent in his dealings with the Dharma and for helping me through my own dark night of the soul. Daniel's one of the rare people I've encountered who's willing to talk about the dark side of the Dharma with absolute openness. I'm curious if you could say something about your own dark night and the role Daniel had in helping you through that. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of my own dark night um you know i've thought about this a lot because as i said i've been someone who has had periods of clinical depression and i don't um you know i think people use different explanatory models um to explain these sorts of phenomenological effects like what is depression you can look at it from a medical psychiatric view you can look at it from a, a spiritual view um and I think it's a really, really confusing issue. And certainly there are biological components, you know, there are psychological components, social, spiritual. Um, so I think that, you know, looking back at that time, I think there are a lot of things going on for me. I think I was dealing with episodes of depression. It was just, I had a lot of um, loss in my life at that time. My mother had breast cancer. I had various other things that were happening. I went through the breakup of a marriage. Um, and so I would see it as a period of it was a bit of an existential crisis. And at the same time, I was kind of pursuing this spiritual path and these practices. And I think Daniel was just a support in the sense that he, you know, was always there if I wanted to have a Skype chat or um, shoot him an email. And I just thought he was a really kind person who was really generous with his time. And he was someone who was open to discussing, you know, all of the possibilities. So he wasn't someone who was necessarily saying he's a medical doctor as well. And he wasn't necessarily saying, oh, yep, you've got depression. You should go on an antidepressant. And he wasn't saying, oh, it's, you know, it's meditation related. It's, you know, it's the Dukananas. He was just someone who I felt like was a really it just had a really well-balanced view of, you know, of, of all perspectives. Um, and I found that really helpful because I'd found that, you know, when you're dealing with something like that, you're often dealing with professionals who have a very limited paradigm and a very narrow scope and believe they, you know, do know the answers. And the truth is we, we just don't know, like, what causes these illnesses. And did you emerge from it? 
were you successful in meditating yourself out of it or is it something you still deal with or perhaps it was a, a multi-pronged resolution yeah it was definitely a multi-pronged resolution um and that's the i think the confusing and complex thing you know i could tell you everything that i did but it won't necessarily work for the next person but um as I said, like, I think it's, you know, it's multifactored and that there's probably, I think in my case, I also suffered from a lot of chronic fatigue and I think there's, you know, possibly a viral component to it. Um, and, you know, I definitely didn't just sit there and meditate my way out of it. Um, and these days, you know, I thankfully consider myself to be in remission, but I definitely go through periods where I'll start to get a bit tired and, you know, f feel a bit like achy and, and overwhelmed. and I think I just have to be very mindful of my lifestyle to not fall into those, um, you know, old habits again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting for a number of reasons, actually. But I think we'll move on to the book now. In your book, The Dark Side of Dharma, based on your thesis of the same name, and from what I understand, there's a discount code that you've kindly, you and your publishers have kindly furnished us with here that people can use. I don't get a kickback from that. So I'm, it's not an affiliate system here. It's just that you've kindly offered that discount. So if people are interested in the book, please look to the show notes and you'll find a, a discount code there to which I'm not myself affiliated. In chapter two, The Dark Side of Dharma, Meditation Adverse Effects, you make a fascinating point about the convergent points of the main uh, means of explaining the so-called dark night experiences of meditators. And I think this a little bit ties into what you've just been saying. You write, during the course of my research, I attempted to delineate the Buddhist dark night and found there are currently three dominant discourses regarding the dark night in Buddhist postmodernism. One, the Dukkhanana discourse. Two, the insight gone wrong discourse. And three, the meditation adverse effects discourse. While these discourses appear on the surface to be quite different, they're linked by a common theme that is an attempt to differentiate between Buddhist meditation-related difficulties and Western psychopathology. So I'm curious, can you summarize these three discourses and elaborate a bit on the attempted differentiation between the Buddhist religious and Western psychological views? Yeah, so, um, I mean, as many people have already pointed out, the term dark night is not a Buddhist term. So it, it usually refers to a poem and theological commentary that's written by um, St. John of the Cross. Um, and it, it talks about the difficult journey of the soul and its quest to reach a mystical union with God. Um, and so this term was taken up um, by transpersonal psychologists in the 1960s and 70s when they were talking about spiritual emergency. Um, so you're probably familiar that the uh, Stanislav Grof and his wife, Christina Grof, wrote a book um, called Spiritual Emergence. And this book talks about a type of identity crisis um, that can result from having a, a really intense spiritual experience. Um, and in their book, various authors refer to um, spiritual crisis sometimes as a dark night. So that was the first um, you know, place I, I traced it back to in terms of Western psychology. And then you find um, Jack Cornfield and Daniel Ingram both use the term to refer to the Dukkananas. Um, in, so Jack in A Path with Heart and Daniel in Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. And um, so that was one, one discourse. But then 
I also found we had Shinzen Young, another well-known teacher who said, no, the Dark Knight is not the Dukunanas. I use that term to refer to um, something that's much more serious, which is when someone misinterprets the insight into non-self or impermanence. And so Shinzen has an amazing YouTube video where he talks about this experience um, and how it might be um, diagnosed by Western psychology as derealization or depersonalization, um, which is a feeling that the self and the world are not real. Um, but really he thinks it could be um, what he calls enlightenment's evil twin. Um, so a misinterpretation of these insights. Um, so they were the, the first two um, discourses that I identified. So the Dukkanana discourse and then the insight gone wrong discourse. And then the final way that the term dark night had been used um, was that Willoughby Britton, who is a neuroscience researcher, um, started looking, started a project looking at meditation adverse effects, and she called it the dark night project. Um, and within that context, dark night was kind of used as an umbrella term to describe a whole range of meditation related difficulties or challenges. Um, and while the project's now called the Varieties of Contemplative Experience, um, that association, I think, with the term dark night kind of hung around. Um, certainly on internet forums or Reddit, you would hear people talking about the dark night. Um, but the first thing I had to do in my research is really delineate or differentiate what are we actually talking about? Because, you know, it seems that a lot of different people are using the term dark night to refer to a lot of different experiences. Were you aware uh, of that? Yes. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Certainly very aware of the different uses of the terms and really quite radically different. Uh, mm. One often hears uh, people influenced by the pragmatic Dharma. People will say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm dark nighting this week and so on. You know? yeah. And it's, it's amazing actually the, the way these terms are used so, so diversely. Yeah. yeah, it's incredible. It, it's I find it fascinating. And then mm. like how much of that experience is being constructed by these communities around the term. You know, it, it's amazing. Could you say something about that? It's uh, often uh, said, and I don't, is it, I don't know if this is what you're pointing at, that the word scripting can come up, that the idea that this is a, a, a criticism that is leveled at Daniel Ingram and Kenneth Folk, that in uh, emphasizing the maps of the insight the, of which the Dukananas are a part so much then in a certain sense they steer or script the experience of their followers down those paths so i'm curious is that what you're talking about there when you're talking about constructed experience or some sort of some social function these these ideas mm -hmm. are, are performing yeah i mean um firstly i i do understand that i well i believe that in the traditions that's why maps when were not made public or they were hidden because they were hoping to avoid um, encouraging that type of um, scripting or constructing the experience. And, you know, there's a really interesting debate going on regarding how much of meditation is revealing what is already there versus how much it is constructing an experience. So um, I think Evan Thompson talks about this in great detail and probably much more eloquently than I could, um, but he talks about the experience of going to a retreat and how people think that they're going there to um, 
you know, to, to deconstruct experience and get to some sort of baseline level of reality. But really the experience is just constructing a new way of being or a new way of perceiving. So I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, Daniel would counter that by saying, you know, people spontaneously report these experiences and these cycles um, and the perennialists, you know, will make the argument that throughout history, there appear to be cases of people in really disparate cultures and situations who kind of seem to have these same experiences that look like a spiritual crisis. So I think that's, you know, one of the core um, questions regarding mysticism. It's like, is there some sort of perennial truth or, you know, path that the mystic travels or is this all socially constructed? And what, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, maybe I could ask that a little bit more intelligently. What's your current <laughs> what's your current thinking on that? Oh, my current thinking on that is, do you know, I've got to a place where at this point, I'm kind of just sitting with the mystery of it. So um, I recently read this really beautiful book called Intimate Alien, and it's about UFOs. And in this book, the author David Halperin talks about the UFO um, not as a physical vehicle, but as a vehicle of re-enchantment. And um, I think that that's how I'm currently thinking about the mystical experience. I'm thinking maybe it's not a puzzle that we can ever solve, but it's certainly a vehicle for re-enchantment. Um, and I think that particularly as a scholar in this area, you could just drive yourself absolutely crazy thinking about these things. So sometimes you just have to put it down, you know? So that's that's my current thinking on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And in your book, you seek to answer the question, why are these uh, dark night by the definition that you've just laid out experiences not as discussed or emphasized in secular meditational contexts and you give three key reasons for that or three categories of, of, of reason. Could you talk a little bit about that question and um, what those three key reasons are? Um, yeah, so my research was focused around looking at why adverse effects had been ignored and um, I ended up giving three main reasons and the first one was that um, I said that in secular Western situations, um, the goal of meditation has shifted. So it's shifted from, um, you know, a religious goal regarding enlightenment to one regarding uh, symptom relief or personal transformation. Um, and then the other thing I looked at was how I thought that there, there was actually information that existed in various religious traditions about adverse effects, but in the rush to secularize, um, you know, a lot of there's a disconnection from these traditions so I thought a lot of information was just simply unknown or lost um, because people were not connecting with the teachers or the texts or the traditions um, you know where this information was contained and then the third thing I looked at was the media coverage of meditation and there's a really interesting story there just looking at how meditation has been um, I guess, promoted by the media or positioned or in a way hyped um, and presented as this type of panacea. So in um, 1975, there was a Time magazine 
article um, and the cover of, of the magazine actually had Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the founder of TM on the cover and the title was um, the answer to all your problems question mark um, in reference to meditation and I just really thought that summed it up that there'd been this kind of perception that meditation was this panacea that could be used for anything like any health concern you might have. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'd like to ask you a bit about each of those points. The first one, whereby the goal of meditation shifted from the religious to the psychological. In your chapter, From Enlightenment to Symptom Relief, you dive deeper into some of the friction points between the religious context of meditation and its modern psychological applications. And you write, some scholars have gone so far to argue that the Hindu and Buddhist goal of meditation the realization that the individual self is illusory is fundamentally irreconcilable with the Western therapeutic goal of facilitating the development of a cohesive psychological self. Could you unpack for us a little bit why these goals can be seen to be irreconcilable or at the very least potentially problematic? Um, yeah, so I think this question hinges around the different ideas regarding the self. So, um, you know, Western psychology values a stable sense of identity, um, whereas in Eastern traditions, meditation is aimed towards deconstructing the self and realizing that the self, you know, as we think of it, is um, an illusion. So um, in the West, we've taken meditation to be about bettering the, the psychological self. So it's kind of seen in the context of healing or self-improvement or self-care. Um, it's often focused on symptom relief, such as the alleviation of chronic pain or, or depression. Um, and I, you know, I was doing a summary of, of um, these notes the other day and came up with all of these S's. But um, I think meditation in the, in the West is promoted as being simple, secular, science-friendly, side-effect-free, and a solution to, to all, all of these things. Um, whereas, you know, as you would know, in Eastern religious traditions, meditation is about transcending the small psychological self um, and realizing that it's the belief in this reality of this self that is at, often at the root of suffering or that is always at the root of suffering. Um, so the Eastern religious goal of meditation is um, liberation or enlightenment or to get off the wheel and to not be reincarnated again. Um, and I think that um, also Eastern traditions, if you, if you look at these texts, um, you know, will often mention that meditation can both heal and harm. So it can be high reward, but it can also be high risk, um, you know, if you're not doing it properly. Um, and that's why these traditions have, um, you know, proper preparation. Um, they have a supportive context. They have teachers who know what they're doing. Um, and they also believe that not everyone should necessarily meditate. So, um, which I found really interesting as well. Like I discovered that, um, you know, in, in the yoga system, good health is a prerequisite to meditation. So it's not necessarily a result of the practice. So people, um, you know, are doing kriyas and cleansing techniques and yoga asana in order to prepare themselves to then sit in meditation. So in the West, we kind of almost have it backwards where we're saying, oh, meditate and it will make you better. Whereas, you know, in some of these traditions, the idea was to get yourself in the best possible condition so that then you could dedicate your time to meditating. Um, you know, and that's not to say that meditation doesn't... Um, 
you know, that, that it can't be used to heal. So obviously scientific studies have shown moderate effects um, for meditation for a variety of conditions. Um, and I mean, my interest lies in the intersection of mystical experiences and healing. And I'm really interested in those, um, you know, in those kind of cases that are right at the at either end of the bell curve. And I think there's fascinating um you know, instances of people who seem to have to to have cured all sorts of ailments through meditation and had spontaneous remissions and all sorts of things. So I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying that traditionally, you know, it, it generally wasn't the goal of meditation to cure illness. That's very interesting. In Bhikkhu Analio's 2020 article that appeared in the Mindfulness Journal, Meditation Maps, Attainment Claims and the Adversities of Mindfulness. And in fact, we covered this article. Uh, I did an extended interview with Daniel, who was featured in that article or criticized, I suppose, in that article. But in that article, Bhikkhu Analio, a scholar of early Buddhism, or makes the point that actually the adverse effects are being overemphasized in Western research projects such as Willoughby Britain's A Dark Knight Project and or varieties of contemplative experience and uh, things of that, of that nature. And that people like Daniel Ingram have taken not only the techniques, but also certain maps and, and titles and so on and reinterpreted them outside of their proper context. I think Analio is making the same criticism, but perhaps in the completely opposite direction that the uh, possibility of these uh, Dukkananas occurring for example, is overblown. So I'm curious what you think about that. Um, well, I think it raises a really interesting question about, you know, what, how many people are affected by meditation adverse effects? What is the, you know, frequency? How frequently are they occurring? Um, and when I was doing my research, there was no data on this. And, um, you know, if you speak to Daniel or Willoughby, what they're doing is, you know, is focused on a lot of what they're doing. Um, you know, Daniel's doing other things as well, but they're focused on helping meditators in distress and their um, Willoughby in particular that, you know, her research just focuses on adverse effects. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's easy to look at that and say, oh, well, obviously if all you're doing is looking for adverse effects, you're probably, you know, you, you're, you're finding a lot of them and you might be, um, you know, have a skewed perspective on, on how frequently these effects occur. And I think recently a paper came out saying, I, d I don't know the name of the paper, but we can include it in the show notes. I'll find it for you. So there were two. Um, one I do remember actually was by Farias um, and colleagues. And they uh, did an analysis and said that adverse effects were mentioned in 65% of the studies that they analysed. And then there was another study um, that said that the rate was about 25%. So 25% of meditators reported an adverse effect. Um, so I'm really curious, like I think we, we had this discussion before the show started where I said, I'd love to ask you a question, which is as a meditation teacher, um, you know, are you seeing these types of adverse effects? Because obviously as a scholar, um, I'm looking at discourse, I'm looking at, um, 
studies, I'm looking at data, I'm not a meditation teacher, I haven't got people coming through my door, you know, and telling me about their practice. So I'm actually really interested to hear your thoughts on this and how common you think adverse effects might be. Yeah, that is an interesting question. And I think if you're asking about my personal experience, sharing meditation with people, then of course, I'm from that point of view, even less well positioned to make a general a statement about the general prevalence or, or not of adverse effects. One thing I think that is essential is to define what we mean by adverse effects. And what do we mean by adverse effect in the literature when we're, when we're saying that? Mm. Yeah, so um, in the literature, we're talking about things like, um, well, first of all, I, I really like the definition that um, Lindall and Britton give in their paper, The Varieties of Contemplative Experience, and they talk about an adverse effect as being a challenging or difficult um, experience that is functionally impairing and that requires support. So I think it's something that, you know, is more is is serious and that it's it's causing ongoing problems. Um, and then in terms of what that might look like, I mean, the, the ones that spring to mind that are the most reported are things like um, cycling of mood, um, dissociation or like derealization, depersonalization. And then obviously you have people um, who develop psychosis after long retreats sometimes. Yeah. And by that definition of adverse effects, well, let me put it this way. I think that definition of adverse effects, there are many contributing factors to what might cause that. For example, pre-existing psychological, emotional, or traumatic factors. For instance, um, if one has a high degree of trauma, then something as simple as feeling the sensations of the body or tuning into one's emotions or, or thoughts, for example, can cause quite an aversive reaction. And one of the classic signs of trauma, for example, is of course what? Dissociation and various degrees of dissociation. And it's a mistake, it's generally seen to be a mistake, to plunge someone through the liminal covering of their dissociation into what lies beneath. Why do traumatized people have difficulty, for example, sometimes contacting the sensations of the body? Or why, why is there dissociation? Well, because it hurts. Because it hurts. Because there's difficult, painful material and sensations down there. So therefore, plunging somebody, dunking someone through that layer of dissociation and resistance to feeling through say means such as a very intensive military style retreat scenario can be problematic that being said i think military style retreats can be interesting and enjoyable for people who want that and want to sign up for that so one could say well does that mean we should have uh, no intensive retreats allowed just in case it triggers some some trauma i think no that's not the answer either so it's a tricky area. You know, the problem with military style, industrial style, if you want, um, meditation retreats is that the schedule is very rigorous. It's intense. The hours are intense. The sensory isolation intent is intense. In fact, Dan Brown did a series of studies, uh, I believe um, uh, some decades ago, in which he was monitoring uh, the participants in the three-month meditation retreats that were going on, I believe, at IMS. And he found that factors such as the lack of social contact, the sensory deprivation, the social deprivation, long periods of silence, etc., the long periods of sitting and so on, had actually adverse psychological effects similar to solitary confinement or something of that nature. That, wow. Yeah, really amazing research, actually. So he was questioning that silent retreat 
model. And he himself, mm. as a researcher and, and meditation teacher, does not promote the silent retreat model, especially for long periods of time, because he, he thinks it actually produces psychological problems and difficulties. Now, the meditator may see that as spiritual material to work through, karmic material to work through, ignorance or so on to be seen through and so on. You know, who is the self that craves contact, etc., etc. I mean, it can be recast like that. And maybe that's actually a skillful means, if you believe in that view, to highlight the self and, uh, you know, turf it out and look at it and deconstruct it and then be free from it, which, of course, as you point out in your book, is, is an emphasis in, in many traditions. So I think it's very tricky. And I do agree that the friction points between the goals are are poorly understood. So I but think back well, to the, the question is around frequency. Right. So in, in your I'm own teaching, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so how many would you think? So, for example, Willie, Willoughby Britton just recently said that in 2020, 20,000 meditators in distress contacted her organization, Cheetah House, um, which seems like a huge number. So I would think that, you know, as a meditation teacher, um, you know, meditation teachers would be encountering these sorts of effects. So I guess my question to you is just how often would you encounter someone who is having difficulties that, you know, that required additional support or where you felt that, um, you really had to, uh, you know, change their practice or maybe refer them on to someone else. Yeah, well, that's indeed why I'm going about this sort of long circuitous route is to say that I myself don't run intensive boot camp style retreats, residential retreats, for example, with long periods mm -hmm. of social isolation and silence, for example. So I'm trying to contextualize in a certain sense my experience uh, with with some yes. of those caveats so what i'm going to say is that i find it in my own experience quite unusual that adverse effects defined by you this sort of ongoing impairment that requires external support and so on caused by or triggered by let's at least say or exacerbated mm -hmm. by perhaps because then again we come into this issue of causality if you go and play cricket for a couple of hours on a sunday afternoon and you tweak an old back injury or something or a frayed tendon snaps uh, in your knee that it was had been frayed before, can you ascribe cause to the cricket game or the accumulation of effects? So that's why I'm trying to be a little uh, precise about that. So that's why I say triggered by or exacerbated by, or indeed caused by. I don't see much of that myself because the teaching that I do do in that field is very gentle, inquiry-based, not prescriptive. I, I'm aware also that people are coming to meditation class or a meditation situation for many reasons. Uh, sure, some want to get enlightened, but as you point out in your book, that it, <laughs> the same tradition has almost opposite definitions of what that means, depending on the on the school and, and, the, and the era and the time period and so on. In fact, it's mm. the favorite game of religious innovators to react and go the opposite direction to whoever was innovating before. <laughs> and, you know, so, uh, so anyways, yeah, some people are, are doing that. I don't get too many people coming looking for stream entry in Daniel Ingram's uh, approach because I don't propagate that idea. Mm. So um, I, yeah, I'm more of the school, I suppose, or the approach where identifying uh, what are people's objectives with meditation? What are they really doing? I think that's part of a useful inquiry when engaging in something like meditation, which is a religious or quasi-religious practice to bring awareness. What is one doing? For some people, it is a social thing. For some people, it's an aesthetic thing. For some people, it's a yeah. self-improvement thing. For some people, it's a psychological thing. And for some, 
it's a spiritual thing. So there are many, many different uh, ideas here. And I think the teacher has to be very, very confident, a confidence that I certainly don't possess to boldly uh, lead people into the potentially turbulent waters of their psyche uh, with confidence that that's fundamentally a good thing. You know, they will be liberated or they will be healed. I think the same criti criticisms could be made for many self-development and self-improvement approaches, mm. uh, many healing modalities, and perhaps even certain therapeutic uh, modalities. A tremendous confidence in one's position and view that leads mm. one to lead people evangelically, if you will, into territory that uh, is uh, problematic, I think. So what to do if somebody has trauma and so on? I, I think meditation is a poor solution for that in the same way that a yoga class is a poor solution for a slip disc or a torn ACL. I think expert trauma care is the right place. And it doesn't mean you can't meditate as well, but I think to expect meditation to somehow heal that, I don't think that's a very good idea. So your question was about frequency. So personally, very low frequency, but I have to give all those caveats to explain that that's not me necessarily saying it's not happening. Yeah, I mean, I think you raise a really good point regarding the goals of practice and why are we doing it and um you know i think i used to be really obsessed with the idea of what's secular and what's religious and then you get into academia and you realize that the boundary is just so porous and yeah. you know often these categories exist for legal reasons or you know we have to say meditation is secular because we want to teach it in a school um but these you know it, it, these binary categories don't really describe how things are you know in real life um and so i'm no longer really focused as much on that question i think it doesn't really matter if it's secular if it's religious i mean i definitely think there should be transparency around the origins and and one of those reasons which actually i think i only touched on it briefly at the end of the book um, but there are people who have said that, you know, they started mindfulness and then they found out that it was from a, you know, Buddhist background and they felt that um, they'd been deceived and that it had gone against their own religion. And there are people who do feel like, you know, it's a, a covert form of Buddhism and for that reason they'd prefer not to partake. And whether or not that's the case, it doesn't really matter. It's someone's right to know, you know, the, the origin of the technique and, and make a decision um, that, you know, supports their own religious beliefs. Um, but yeah, so whether or not something secular or religious is one thing, but I think it's really important to focus on why are we actually meditating? And as you said, if we're, we've come to meditation to heal psychological problems or to heal trauma, you know, is, is that the best way to do it? Like there's evidence that meditation mindfulness works well for things like chronic pain, for fibromyalgia, you know, um, should we be doing it for trauma? Mm, I'm not sure. Like there are trauma-informed practices now. I'm not an expert in that area. Um, and then, you know, people, <laughs> I think people have said to me in the past, you know, that they're, they're meditating because they want to relax. And I think, well, I don't meditate because I want to relax. If I want to relax, I'll go for a walk at the beach or I'll play with my dog. Um, I've never really... You know, I've come to not see meditation as a particularly relaxing practice. I mean, sometimes fire casino can cause some really nice absorption. But, um, you know, some days sitting there focusing on your breath, you feel you do feel good when you get up afterwards, but it's not a particularly relaxing um, process. 
so I think it's, yeah, it's a really good point. Just being mindful. Ooh, am I allowed to say that? Yeah, just being mindful of um, of why we're doing these practices. Yeah, further definitions that would really need to be unpacked to properly answer that question is which technique, uh, yeah. in which dose, in which mm -hmm. context, couched in what view, um, yep. and with what uh, personal and uh, history. Uh, these yep. are all factors that must be accounted for. And you, you do make that point, you know, yep. it, not only is the dark night of the soul interpreted from everything from having a bit of a low day, which means I'm cycling through the Dukananas today on my way to, you know, path six and a half or whatever, or all the way to I've actually become enlightened. I've seen through the self and I've fallen into the pit of the void, as Shinzen would say, and I'm having mm. a kind of insight gone wrong thing to, to the really, I'd say much more psychological use of the term in terms of adverse effects that that itself is so well how common is what exactly by what measure exactly and doing which techniques in which dose in which context both context in terms of one's view and also the context of one's personal history and then of course there's the elements of uh, random chance and so on you know somebody sits down to meditate and this you know suddenly thrust into some strange experience which they had no reason to expect doing a technique in yeah. a very small dose that's very benign i mean that does happen as well i think that would be that now we're getting to the extremely rare side where someone sits down to do say a little bit of gentle relax the muscles and you know think of a beach kind of meditation and finds themselves suddenly uh in some some psychological hell realm that needs um <laughs> years of of support and uh so on i mean i think that's extremely rare but theoretically it could happen and indeed it, it does happen yeah, it, it does. I think that's really interesting um, because then you're looking at traits like absorption or porosity of boundaries and, you know, getting into mystical experiences. There are some people who are just more prone to have those types of experiences. Um, and I had actually a friend was telling me the other day about he was in a group meditation. It was a secular um, meditation in the workplace and a short meditation. And at the end of it, one of the women in the group said, she um her hands had disappeared and um <laughs> he, he said you know it was fine she you know someone talked her through it but i mean that's just such an unexpected outcome of a practice like that um and these things i guess can happen and you know i guess as we study these techniques more and and get a better understanding of um of the effects they have then um you know maybe these sorts of experiences um you know, we'll understand them or they'll be normalized. But um, everything you mentioned is spot on about different techniques and different doses. Um, and the one thing I would add is that um, I think that also the different effects that they have on different aspects of the self. So um, there's another great paper that um, Willoughby Britton wrote, which you have probably read and I can't think of the name of it right now. Oh, I have this feeling of not really being here. And she talks about six different categories of the self and different meditators who've had experiences that have, you know, affected their sense of self. So, you know, their narrative self, their, you know, idea of identity and who they are, or their sense of agency, like, you know, that example of feeling that the hands have disappeared or that they're not controlling their body, um, or even a basic sense of self, like the idea that I exist. So I think... Um, you know, that's one of the points that I make is that we also need to delineate the sense of self and figure out what we're actually talking about when we say, well, you know, meditation 
is is going to affect your sense of self. Yes, I think ambiguity of definition is the source of a great deal of misunderstanding. Um, mm. And I think um, one of the best ways to clarify one's own thinking as a practitioner or a teacher um, or proponent of these sorts of methods is to clarify one's definitions. Terms like the self can be a real black box. Yeah, yeah, but well, it's but it's so it's so vital, and I think that's yeah. been the, the great thing about studying this topic from an academic perspective is that there it has to be that rigor around definition of terms, um, and it has certainly made me think about my own practices and and you know the terms I would use and and what I would say about them, mm -hmm. probably yeah. to the extent that I've become really pedantic. Yeah, well, then we have something in common there. Uh, you know, we're, as we were talking earlier, I was reflecting that. A great deal of the behavior I see in the mindfulness um, Buddhist, let's say uh, spiritual, if you want to call it that, uh, in, in places like America and Europe and Australia, in fact, is reminiscent of religious behavior I've seen in contexts such as Christian contexts and so on. And I think mm -hmm. there is an interesting trajectory of conversion, idealization and, and then disillusionment uh, that can occur, uh, perhaps not to its full extent, in religious conversion of all sorts. And I think there are a lot of interesting questions there about what's really going on. People seem very intent on making a distinction. You talked about secular and religious being a, a tricky bifurcation to make. And I do agree, and it, I think it's the, certainly the case that as much as the religious informs the secular in the meditation world, I think the reverse is also true. And there's a lot of cases could be made historically for a certain revision of religious, of the religious standard by outside influences. Uh, for instance, uh, that's been a critique of the Burmese approach to meditation, mm. for instance, that it's been it, it as a traditional system is, is in fact really a rather modern and perhaps even influenced by colonial or Christian influences, reworking yes. of certain Buddhist things. But another uh, terms that I think are very difficult to separate, which are taken as in the same way secular and religious are taken as obvious is um, spiritual and religious. People will say, well, I'm spiritual, mm. but I'm not religious. And I think that's an interesting, uh, another interesting pairing of words, uh, which upon closer examination, that distinction uh, raises some, some real issues. Uh, but when we look at the history of religion and we look at what religious behavior is, I think a lot of spiritual, say, behavior <laughs> is really quite similar. So I think there's an awful lot of that going on. And so it's no surprise to me that your academic study and work has cause you to reevaluate a lot of your your own concepts as a practitioner it seems to be yeah i mean spirituality is a, a really tricky one and i'm constantly um you know finding myself looking for various definitions um actually i found one today that i think it was um sheldrake and talking about um spirituality being a connection with the sacred and with the deepest values and meanings by which people live um, and I thought that that was pretty good. Um, and then in terms of religion, I mean, I think people think of spirituality as, as that kind of connection to the sacred without the organization. So religions generally have, you know, an, an, an institution, um, doctrine, some sort of cosmology. Whereas I think spirituality now in the modern West is, you know, they, they describe it as pick and mix. You can kind of you know, take what you like from various traditions and leave what, what you don't like. Um, and, but 
you know, on a more serious note, it, it still is incredibly important to people. And, you know, I think we said earlier that um, the thing that I'm really aware of with this type of research is that it's a very sensitive topic. Um, and we're talking about issues that concern people's spiritual lives. So I think that there needs to be a lot of respect when we're approaching these issues. Yes, I think that's an excellent point. I, I suppose my point was that today in the pick and mix spirituality we have in a certain sense this we could argue the spiritual marketplace is the new church it is the new religious institution it has its gatekeepers it has its high priests the best-selling authors um mm. and and the um you know widely renowned teachers and so on it has its own cosmology i think in a certain sense pluralistic but nonetheless it has its own its own cosmology it's a new religious movement one could say, and in its, in perhaps in its nascent form, and just in the same way that often we define musical genres in hindsight, uh, this was the Renaissance period, you know, this was the classical period, this was you know, so on, this was the Romantic period. To what degree those, uh, especially pivotal composers moving from one era to the next, were, were aware of, of such, a, such a genre classification? Probably not, but in hindsight, we can make that. And so I think it may be the case that what a lot of people are calling spiritual now uh, could also be described as, as religious. I think that's really interesting because generally, you know, we think of the individual operators within the new age category as being, you know, possible new religious movements. Um, but I've never thought about the new age itself or, you know, the whole spiritual milieu as being a religion, you know, in hindsight, we look back, but maybe that's why SBNR, spiritual, not religious, is included as a religious option. Um, sorry, as an option, like maybe it is its own category of religion. I think that's something really, um, yeah, it's a really interesting point. Speaking of my experience meditation teacher, I do occasionally get usually young men coming and they're say, you know, can you help me reach stream entry and so on? And, and I ask them, what do you want to do? And they I want to get stream entry, you know, I want to get stream entry. Oh, I think I had stream entry. And then I ask them what their actual practice goals are, what they actually want. So then we, we, we lay that out. And then I ask them what that has to do with stream entry. Mm. And very often the answer is absolutely nothing. <laughs> mm. It just seems like a good idea. I think that a lot of people who are, as they say, gunning for stream entry to use the lingo, are doing so just because it's what you're supposed to do. And the reason they're meditating is not actually to do with stream entry or, or its proposed results. Mm -hmm. I think this yeah, is another I... issue that can happen in terms of adverse effects of mindfulness or meditation is that people adopt the objectives and the cosmology, if you want to you know, go that grand, of the teacher of the system. They, they get into it, they enjoy it a lot. And it's, um, it's just how cults work, actually. The first uh, stuff yep. you get from a cult is very effective and it works wonderfully. And then the next thing you know, you're believing in who knows what. And it's the same yeah. accidentally that happens with my belief. Gosh, this technique has given me such a wonderful benefit. What's that you say about reincarnation? What's that you say yeah. about the fourth path? Yeah. And they yeah. take that as the same with the same amount of value. Verify. And this is why I think it has so many parallels to religious conversion. Because the same mm. thing, you go, to a, you go to your evangelistic tent and you put your hands up. And you feel the presence of God, you know, you feel this high state of transpersonal experience. And it's just so beautiful. And the people there together and the heart just bursts open and the wonder, you know, the, the, the brain waves, everything's just so ecstatic state. And then someone at the, at the front says, that's Jesus touching you. And you go, wow. Mm -hmm. And those two things 
the experience and the interpretation go together. There's all these really rather unrelated layers of meaning and belief that come packaged with this core experience of transpersonal ecstasy yeah. or something. Yeah, that's it's it's very true. And I mean, you see the same thing with psychedelics, which is why it's going to be so important that therapists, um, you know, don't impart their own worldviews on on clients if if this gets through, um, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy, because people have had, you know, this peak experience and they're in a really open, malleable state. Um, so I think that, yeah, that's a high risk situation for one of those conversion type experiences. I'd like to ask you one more question about your work uh, in the book, The Dark Side of the Dharma. And then I'd like to ask you a little bit about your current psychedelic research. You're doing a PhD investigating the phenomenology of high dose psilocybin experience. Yes. Uh, but uh, in chapter seven of your book, uh, The Dark Side of Dharma, uh, Facing the Shadow, you write, one of the issues that intrigued me most regarding my meditation adverse effects research was the resistance I encountered from some members of the secular meditation community. In particular, a very small number of meditation teachers expressed obvious discomfort and sometimes outright denial regarding the idea that there could be anything dark about meditation. This discomfort and denial usually manifested in the form of victim blaming. If there was a meditation related problem, then it was generally attributed to the individual meditator. They were doing it wrong, practicing too much, were depressed, had a personality disorder. The list goes on. It seemed that for some people, meditation occupied an unchallengeable position. It was unquestionably good. Hence, the question that I was faced with early on in my research was, what does it mean when something is held to be all good? And you go on uh, from there to discuss many interesting ideas. I'm curious, actually, about the you know the sort of pushback you had. And I know in our chatting a little bit before we were recording um, that you had also received some uh, certain pushback or resistance or criticism after having published your master's thesis and presumably this book as well. So I'm curious what sort of resistance you encountered, uh, what sort of uh, anecdotes you might have from that research period and indeed from the post-publication period. Mm. Yeah, I think things have changed a lot since I started. So um, the last chapter looks at the denial of the dark side um, and covers spiritual bypassing, which is normally thought of as something that, you know, is an individual phenomenon that an individual goes through. But I made the argument that when it comes to meditation, maybe we have, um, as a collective, as a culture, have, you know, been engaging in a bit of spiritual bypassing when it comes to these techniques. So hoping that they're some sort of panacea, you know, focusing on the positive, but at the same time, you know, going so far as to deny that anything dark or bad could be associated with these techniques. Um, and I think that, you know, this poses some risks, um, you know, in terms of things like rationalizing bad behavior by meditation teachers. So if meditation is all good and the traditions are all good, then when something bad happens, we have to find a way to rationalize, you know, ourselves out of that sense of cognitive dissonance. So um, when I was writing the book, a couple of meditation teachers actually were um, engaged in sexual abuse scandals. And if you were looking at the Reddit, you know, for or the forums at the time, 
Um, there was a lot of rationalization around, you know, well, enlightenment doesn't correlate with morality. So they're still enlightened, but, you know, or maybe it's some form of crazy wisdom. Um, you know, there's a spiritual lesson in it. Um, and I think that there's, you know, this this irony, if we look at, say, mindfulness as a technique of non-judgment, we have to be careful that, you know, we don't lose too much judgment that we get to the point where we're not able to discern, you know, what is ethical, what is, you know, clearly right and clearly wrong. Um, so I think, yeah, that was just one of the things that um, that I wanted to end on, just bringing attention to the fact that, you know, when something is 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 um, promoted as being all good, then we should take a closer look at that narrative. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I know your research now, as we mentioned, is in the field of psychedelics. And actually, it's so fascinating. There are so many parallels, uh, possibly there, that I'd really, really like to dive into that deeply. So rather than asking you about your psychedelic research now, which I think might give it a bit short shrift, given how long we've been talking, I think it'd be fantastic to do another episode, picking up where we left off here and delving into your, your area of psychedelic research, which is really uh, quite fascinating work you're doing. Thanks, Steve. I would love to do that. Great. And um, one last question, and I don't know if you have thought about this, but talking about psychedelics, um, one of the things we were chatting about before was uh, the way meditation has is treated or, or, or dealt with, um, even in the academy, and the way psychedelics is dealt with both socially and in the academy has some interesting parallels, almost a feeling of deja vu in, in some way. And I'm curious if you have considered historically any other, if you want, crazes or uh, ideas such as mindfulness meditation uh, that has gone through this life cycle. In other words, you know, sometimes people are always talking about, you know, oh, the fall of Rome and, you know, the, the life cycle of a civilization and where are we now in, in our civilization? Are we at a fall of Rome moment or where are we in the life cycle of our, as if all civilizations or, or, or civilizations can be seen to follow certain kind of patterns. If mindfulness meditation is following a life cycle uh, in the mm. culture, have you considered where we might be in that? And do you see any parallels historically with any other phenomena uh, that we might use to map where we are in the same way that we can use the fall of Rome, for instance, to consider where we are in terms of our own culture today? Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know about historical cycles, but I think mindfulness definitely went through a hype peak. And I would say that happened, you know, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think before COVID, we had reached peak wellness. And I think that, you know, if you situate my research, it was happening at a time when there was so much happening in the wellness space. There were meditation teachers doing six-week courses in Bali and then becoming accredited, you know, teachers. And I think it really was the peak of, you know, the, the meditation hype. And I think probably now we're just in a rebalancing phase. I don't think it will disappear, but I think that there, you know, we're, we're probably in a maturing phase. Um, I think the research is improving. I think that, um, you know, that there are more voices regarding diversity of experiences. So, um, yeah, I think maybe we've just passed that peak hype or excitement part of the cycle. Um, I, it's funny with psychedelics, I think that there's a, a lot of overlap um, 
in terms of how they've been integrated into therapeutic culture. But my view on psychedelics is that, um, you know, while meditation has been viewed in an overly positive way, maybe, I think psychedelics have been viewed in an overly negative way. So um, I think we've actually overestimated the harm of psychedelics and underestimated the benefits. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the, the press reporting on LSD um, in the 1960s was, you know, almost the opposite of what we've seen with mindfulness now, but um, like equally intense and possibly sensational, but um, in a very, very negative way. So, um, and, and there's a lot of awareness in the psychedelic community that we don't go through another hype cycle with psychedelics and that we learn our lessons from what happened before and that we approach, you know, this research cautiously and that we're not over promising their benefits, but really doing very rigorous scientific studies. Well, that's a fascinating topic to dive into next time. Yep, I look forward to it. Anna Lukaitis, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.